the misnomer that people have is that you just throw marketing budgets and then everyone drives acquisition. The things that makes it most expensive is if you're not talking to exactly the person that you have high predictability will purchase. So if you're a scrappy entrepreneur and you're launching for the very first time, what you're totally thinking about is if I find this one customer that looks just like this, 90% of the time, can I convince them to buy? This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, friend. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, aka Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Get Shit Done is the platform and community supporting women entrepreneurs in getting real results, gaining traction, and growing companies that scale generational impact. Every week, we're teaching you different ways to scale so you can choose the path that's in alignment with your vision. There is not only one way to scale. We provide you with the weekly growth playbooks through conversations with dope-ass women entrepreneurs who have scaled beyond a million and they're spilling the tea on how you can do it too. Today, your growth playbook is coming from my girl, Sydney Tetro, founding CEO of Brandless, a leading e-commerce company that raised $118 million. She's breaking down her journey to becoming the founding CEO that started with her own journey as a founder and builder. What I love about this breakdown is that it gives founders insights into when you should fire yourself. I mean, real talk, at the end of the day, not every founder is meant to be the one to grow the company at each stage. And you know what? That's okay, boo. In this playbook, Sydney walks through how private equity was an incredible partner in helping Brandless grow to where they are today. Sorry, not sorry. I always say private equity is venture capital's hotter older brother, period. In addition, she gives you insights into how the different brands operating under the Brandless umbrella are well-oiled machines by simply following the data and listening to the customer. And she's giving you the frameworks for how you can apply it to your business. Plus, I know y'all love to learn about how to better acquire customers, so Sydney breaks down ways to approach customer acquisition when you ain't got no money. And special bonus for our consumer and e-commerce companies out there. We know y'all are treated like the ugly ducklings when it comes to funding. And I get it, y'all. I was in that position in my last company. But Sydney spills the tea on where and how to get funding in this space. You know I got y'all. As always, get ready to get your life and take these notes on how to grow your business. And as you prepare for your weekly traction playbook, please take 10 seconds to rate and review this podcast if it's valuable to you. This helps us more than you know to help more founders discover our content so we can grow together. And if you're looking for everyday support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash membership where you can learn about how you can get the support you deserve in growing your business to the next level. Our community and platform helps you get unstuck, 
get the support you deserve, and grow on your own terms. And without further ado, Queen Sydney Tetra. Sydney, welcome to Get Shit Done. I'm so excited to be here. I'm happy she's here. Um, I found out that she's originally from Chicago, and you OG listeners know that I was there for 10 years. But she's in Utah now. One of my really good good friends who's a growth ally for Get Shit Done, Christina Blacken, founder of The New Quo, is like my first friend that was from Utah (laughs) that I knew of. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm really excited about this conversation because before we started recording, Sydney and I were talking about how she's unique, similar to – Judith Irwin, who is the former CEO of Grasshopper Bank, um, where she's not technically the founder, but she's the founding CEO. That's the way I kind of see it. Is you know, I was just telling her that I think it took me getting to get shit done in my third business to understand when I need to fire myself as the founder. <laughs> is that when it gets to like the maintaining of the business, I'm like, I want to grow the thing, see what's possible in the market, and then once it gets like big enough, I'm like okay, what other thing can I create off of it? So I'm really excited you're here, and we're going to get into how you got to Brandless. But um, before we get started, I always like to do a quick check-in. So if you could describe in one word how you're feeling in the business today, what would that one word be? And that could change in like an hour. It could. That is true. It could also change in an hour. Um, I would say I am super optimistic. That would be the word that I have today. I love this because, especially in this environment, we're recording in April 2023, um, just all of the the news, actually, it's kind of confusing because it's like, are we going to hit a recession? And they're like, yes, and then no, and then banks are collapsing. And then it's like, wait, but then they were saved. And there's so much where I feel like there's so much angst. So why did you choose optimistic? Why are you feeling optimistic? I mean, there is no doubt what you just said. We're in this crazy market dynamic. I really view it as this idea of constant change. Since the pandemic hit, you can just guarantee every quarter or every six months, something major is going to happen. And so as you build businesses or you think about ideas, you find yourself having to really become great at operations, great at your vision and orchestrating these parts. And one of the the coolest things about what we've been building here and what's what's happening is we're still growing. So just like you said, there's all this noise. What are consumers doing? Are they pulling back on spending? How is that impacting your ability to raise capital or in any fashion? And when we watch the consumer in the market that we're at, which is really this accessible, exceptional daily routine space, we haven't seen a change in the consumers and we've actually seen growth. And we are seeing growth across everything in in our company. And that is why I would say optimistic, like despite all the factors out there. And I think you have to be that way as an entrepreneur anyway. Like your job is to see opportunity and then figure out how to go take advantage of it. You were just talking about three companies that you've built. Like that's how your mind works. You're thinking about innovation. You're thinking about opportunity. And you have to do that. You have to understand how your business operates, but you really have to be excited about what the future holds when you're building companies. I love this, and I'm really excited for consumer companies because consumer companies have a rough go at it (laughs) Um, because consumers can be very, very fickle, and there's just something really interesting happening in the market where it's like, wait, like all these layoffs are happening in tech companies, which is like tech only employs like 2% of the population, but you're seeing a lot of growth in things like services and consumer stuff. Like that's really exciting to me 
because like a lot of those, a lot of companies in tech were actually like just overindulging anyway. And so it feels like we're coming to an equilibrium. And I actually love to look at consumer companies to actually look at the pulse of the market and what's actually happening with the economy. Cause I don't think tech is a great, it, it is very much a, in its own bubble and does not yep. represent actually what's happening in the overall market. So I love that you're saying optimistic because that makes me optimistic about the actual economy and what's <laughs> happening because consumers are still spending. So I love optimism. So let's take it back to um, what were you doing before you got into Brandless? Because it sounds like you've had your own entrepreneurial go at it as well. So what what were all the things that transpired that got you to this position? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think of my, like who I am as really a storytelling technologist. Interesting, you're talking about technology. I did my undergrad in computer science. So I've been very close to tech my Amazing. entire career as I've built that. And similar to you, the thing that I always think about is how do you make products that people want and how do you take them to market and get people to use them? That's the thing that I think about all of the time. And how do you drive those connections with people? So I've had a couple of, I've had some opportunities to do really interesting things in my career. Um, I spent six years at Disney and during my time in Imagineering at Disney, my job was really unique. It was the first time they'd ever hired someone into this role. And it was to make businesses out of technology innovation that we would spin into theme parks and um, ESPN and ABC and studio. So I had this really interesting opportunity on the, one of the biggest stages in the world to take innovation, figure out how it would make a difference and then build products and really anchor my experience in what it really means to become a storyteller, not just a marketer because they're different. And then from there, when I left Disney, I actually launched a 3D printing company where we made personalized merchandise. You could literally become Iron Man. So we built a system that scanned your face and would allow you to buy yourself as a 3D printed collectible. And eventually we partnered with Hasbro. They built an action figure line. We deployed it into Targets and Walmarts and Toys R Us all over the country, raised a bunch of venture capital for that, and eventually sold it to 3D printing. What was magical about that company is you were helping people become part of their favorite storylines. And we partnered with Marvel and Star Wars. You probably name an IP brand we did a deal with them. The NFL, Major League Baseball, Assassin's Creed, Halo, gaming, entertainment, sports. We had a partnership with them. And it put us on these really fun stages. We went to the Super Bowls. We went to the World Series. We showed up at Comic-Con. And it really was this powerful way to connect with consumers. Like they have stories that they love to be part of. Everyone wants to be part of a story. Everyone wants to be um, have relationships with things that they care about. And we happen to do it in a really fun way in an entertainment space at that time. But it translates to whatever company you're building. When I sold that company to a 3D printing company, I then launched another um, company that we built all around digital storytelling, but more in the B2B space. Actually helping technology companies think about you're going to go sell tech. It's not about selling tech. It's about the customer experience that you transform. It's about how you make whatever that ecosystem is better, the customer experience better. It's how you reduce cost. But you do that by demonstrating end result and what the transformation becomes, not by selling technology. The technology enables us to do amazing things. It's not the end place. And, and that's what we see in technology today. We have AI that's all around us. And what it's doing is enabling a whole new way of innovation to occur, a new way for us to then think about the world. And that's what's most powerful. It's how you sell all technology. So yeah. I've had like this technology thread through everything. 
And the combination of that tech side, the storytelling side, and my mission-driven side really are the things that brought me to the doorstep of Brandless. I love this because when it comes to, especially storytelling, right? Something I see a lot of tech companies doing, especially around AI, because it's like catnip in the market now, because crypto <laughs> and Web3 are still trying to figure their shit out. And so now everyone's like, well, AI has been here and been really reliable. And so I see like companies that are always trying to position it. So we are an AI company. And I'm like, but you're not like it's AI enabled. What do you solve? And I, I think it's it's really cheap when companies do that. And I know why they're doing it, because they're trying to get the attention of investors or whatever. Sure. But I'm like, your consumer does not care. So the end of the day, like I loved what you said about there's a difference between being a storyteller and a marketer. And I've been talking to my team about this recently and some friends and advisors that when we look at the data for women entrepreneurs where they tend to say, here's where I need a lot of help in the business, they over-index on marketing. And mind you, I love marketing. I do. Sure. Love it. But I think when you're an early stage company and you're the founder and CEO, your job needs to be selling and selling is storytelling. And so right. can you break down like that difference. I love what you said. Like there's a difference between storytelling and, and marketing. Can you break down? What is that difference to you in your experience? So I'll do my best and jump in here. Cause I think you have great ideas on this. Also, when you think about marketing, you know, and anyone who's trained in marketing, you think about target customer, you think about key message, you think about how that translates in all the materials that you're creating video or digital content. And then that comes back in. But that's not storytelling, right? That's messaging and positioning. And those happen to be tactics that you're using. If you truly want to sell to someone, then it has to become authentic, values-based, and it has to create opportunity on both sides. So I'm going to give you kind of a, a, a place where this really became um, solidified for me. So when I was working at Disney, I got an opportunity to work on a Star Wars project. We rebuilt the carbon freezing chamber in um, Hollywood Studios. And we were letting people become frozen in carbonite like Han Solo. And so, you know, I stepped into Disney and I had marketing and tech experience. And I'd done a lot of you know, really like interesting things. But when I stepped on to this environment, and this was probably an appreciation of Imagineering, you know, you think about it and I'm like, okay, great. We're going to freeze people in carbonite like Han Solo. We're going to have this magical experience. We're creating this whole stage. And so we start down this process. And I remember the Imagineering team coming, the storytelling and Imagineering, they came back to me and they're like, sit. Thing that you have to appreciate is you're not throwing someone into, into one moment in one time and forgetting everything else about both who they are and the situation that you're putting them in and what they think post. You have to actually think about every stage of the storyline and the experience you're trying to create, not the one moment. And oftentimes when you think of marketing, it's a moment. It is some interaction. It is some tactic. But storytelling is more pervasive. It is the thing that understands the situation, the context, the individual actors, the way that you have to pull everyone together, and then what you need them to do as an outcome of that experience. And it actually transformed my complete way that I thought about that experience we were, we were creating. Um, you know, for me in that one experience, because it's an entertaining experience, I actually had to learn all of the historical things that I didn't know about Star Wars to make a story make sense and to then think about you know, because it wasn't about like you just becoming Han Solo. That doesn't make any sense. It's, it was about all of the other parts of the story that became authentic, that if you tested, could stand the test of time. And that when people walked away were meaningful and spoke to them. 
And people think sometimes storytelling is only entertainment, but it's not. It's true in every business context. We create relationships. Relationships are based on authenticity. They're based on appreciating the person across the table from you. They're based on your ability to relate to that person and create trust so that they want to do a transaction with you. And when you are very good at storytelling, that's the outcome. And it's the reason that great storytelling brands have customers that stay because people believe in them, they're loyal to them, and they, and they see themselves in connection with the thing that they have a relationship with. I love this because it's like wrapping up a lot of my conversations I've had this week. Um, <laughs> one of our, our founders in our community, Reva Minkoff, um, founder of Digital for Startups, she introduced me to this woman named Amy Schuster, and she's really good at scaling sales for companies. And I was talking to her about founder sales. I'm like, we should do a, a session and a workshop within our community about mastering founder sales because something I see so often is founders are trying to off like basically offload sales early on yep. and I'm just like that is one of the worst things you could ever do for your business and it's going to be a waste of time and money because a sales team is meant to optimize what's already working That's if right. you don't know what's working you bringing someone else in is essentially you asking them to be the CEO and That's when right. we kind of were started to dig into well why is it that they are avoiding it and it's fear it's fear of rejection sales like any type of relationships oh. it is it is scary where you're putting yourself out there whether it's friendships business romantic like when you're putting yourself out there you have a there's a likelihood that you could be rejected and so often founders are avoiding it and i think yep. i love this like the way you position storytelling because I, I don't I don't have any like necessarily like I don't wasn't trained in it, but I think I've always been curious. And so I'm good in conversations with people because I ask questions. And yep. so like I think I see that as sales is like when you're just curious instead of just looking at the end outcome, it's like, how can I just ask questions and learn about this thing so we can see if we can deliver a solution versus saying the outcome is this that I want to get out of this interaction. And you put so much pressure and then you can't show up and be authentic. And then you are basically become a marketer, right? It's like, yep. here's all the, here's all the things that we can offer you instead of making it interpersonal. So I love that breakdown. I don't have anything else to add to what you said. <laughs> I have that, that was amazing. That was amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I, I actually call it deal sense. That's mm. my term for the things that you're describing. This idea that you have to have this sense and you have to develop it over the course of your career. Because if you're founding companies, you're raising capital, it is all about a deal. And deals aren't just sales transactions. They're every relationship that you create in context of a business. And what you were just talking about, your ability to read a room, your ability to ask questions, your willingness to listen to the other person before you create a deal structure or try to solve the problem, that intuitive nature are the things that really create the strongest relationships because then you also know when to walk away. Like you walk in the room, you're like, oh yeah, I'm never doing a deal together. Like that's never working. And you can walk away because um, a lot of times people get so fearful too that they just give their own pitch. Like I'm in this room, got to get my pitch. And they forget that the person on the other side has to agree that you're going to create a relationship along the way. So I, I think about it very broadly as this whole skill set. We're all on a journey for our entire career of creating deal sense. And, and that really ability to read the room, create relationships and have lasting results. And I love that you tied Dill's intuition. And that's why I always tell women, I'm like, our superpower is that we're women in business um, totally. because we inherently have strong intuition. And so when we try to 
emulate with what men do. I'm like, that's actually against our nature and the way that we can do better business. And so I love, love that breakdown. And so now I want to shift to brandless. So you have this incredible career where you are launching your own things, you're helping companies grow all these things. So how did we get to, to brandless? Like what was that? And also for the founders listening, when is someone like you, cause like we mentioned this, I started to learn when I need to fire myself. And I think that's very hard for founders, especially first time founders to know that you might not always be the solution for your company to grow at certain stages. I know right. the stages were like, I would never want to run an IPO company. It's just, that's not interesting to me. <laughs> it's just no way. The whole other game. It's a whole other, I'm like, that's maintenance. That's just like not interesting yep. to me. I'm like, I really like, I'm a visionary. I like innovating things. Um, but how did we get to brandless? And then why do you think that you were the, the perfect person to get it to the stage now? So founders that are listening can also mm-hmm. think of like, hey, when do I need to bring someone like Sydney? <laughs> Yeah, no, those are really great questions. So in the summer of 2020, I had, uh, we merged a company that I was running with a holding company. And I found myself in the situation of like, what should I do with my life? Which I often find myself asking, like, what is the thing I'm supposed to go do? And as I stepped back and looked at that, and I looked at the things that are, I mean, all of us, I think, have to evaluate what's core to us. Like, what are the things we're passionate about doing? You were just talking about this, right? There's a series of things that as you go through your career, like, I want to spend my time doing that because I think it's worth my time and investment. I found myself having this internal dialogue of what that looked like. And there's things that are really important to me. I love innovation, similar to you. Like, I always want to be building and growing um, because I like the speed of innovation. I don't like the slowness of like, you want me to write an SOP? I don't know if that's in my DNA, right? Like, I, but I want exactly. to grow. I love technology. Um, that is just, you know, I'm totally fine being a nerd in that space and being someone who understands how things are built. I love storytelling and I love giving back. You created this because you have also have that desire to make a difference for other people. You know, 14 years ago, I created an organization called the Women Tech Council, which has been all about how you increase the number of women in tech. And we've had an amazing impact from high school to the boardroom. And so I have that part in me. And so when I was looking for an opportunity I, after I had gone through that transaction, And I learned a lot of things in those transactions, including things I was never going to do again. And I stepped back and I said, well, where do I want to go? And I knew I wanted to not start from the ground up again. I've done that before. And it's a different level of work when you start a company from the ground and you go raise venture capital. And you just have to be aware and prepared for that. So I wanted an opportunity where I could step into something that had a little bit of validation and be the accelerant for growth and see tremendous growth over a set amount of time. And I wanted it to also have grounding and being mission-driven, something that I felt was making a difference in people's lives and communities and the planet. And so I, this brandless opportunity came to me, a private equity firm had acquired it, they restructured it, and they needed someone to come in and lead it. And it had a bunch of core assets that were part of it that I looked at and said, I think we can go build from there. And then I had a group of investors around it who were also a really interesting partnership because they too wanted growth. And so over the course of the first six months, we then, we raised 118 million and we raised 118 million in capital to then go drive growth. And we did it by leaning into an acquisition strategy and also an organic growth strategy. So in the last 18 months, we've acquired six companies 
and we've added 30% quarter on quarter growth on every one of those companies. So I get to sit at this epicenter of working with amazing entrepreneurs that we're bringing into the ecosystem, building a platform that's accelerating growth and doing it in spaces that I think matter to people and to eco communities and families. And for me, it's been the perfect intersection of things that I really care about. And it's been really fun to go be able to drive that much growth and acceleration in such a short amount of time. I love this. And I say this to all my VC friends who always like give me a side eye whenever I say it, but then they know it's true is private equity is venture capital's hotter older brother. It really is. <laughs> and it's so interesting because with venture capital, it's saying this company needs to go to billions, right? Yep. Because we need to get to a certain return to satisfy our, our stakeholders, which are LPs. And with private equity, I think there's just this beautiful like middle where it's like, you can get to the millions, right? Not billions. And then they are like, we can acquire this company and then build like a kind of a Voltron with multiple companies under the umbrella. So can you like, cause a lot of people don't understand that structure of, you know, we're going to take one company and then we're going to acquire others under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. Can you walk, can you walk people through like, especially in e-commerce, like that opportunity right. and what that process looks like? Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. So we really decided that we would view Brandless as this platform of the people, right? Because Brandless, it's still unapologetically a brand. But when we think about it, we think about how it is for the people. And the, the brands that we're bringing on are real, like that's the thing that people are accelerating. And so we decided to specifically focus in a place that we thought was better for you. So we think about nutrition, clean beauty, personal care, green clean, and home as it pertains to wellness. And then we, as you look at that, and as you're an entrepreneur and you're looking at your business and how these structures work, as an organization that's acquiring companies, we think about acceleration. So we're kind of unique. We have two philosophies. We want to acquire mission-driven, like-minded brands into the portfolio. We want entrepreneurs who want to stay. We believe if you're building and growing, you're doing something magical, and we want to accelerate that. So our philosophy is bolster, don't break. So when we pull companies in, we really try to understand what's the thing that they're so good at that is in the DNA of that organization, and then how do we add to that? So we took a philosophy of lean into entrepreneurs, structure deals that incent both of us for performance in the future, and then add acceleration. So in our corporate structure, we have really strong operating teams to add that value. We own things like our own internal Amazon agency. We have an entire retail arm. We have all of the net leverage arms that you would think about in logistics and regulatory compliance and GNA, so that entrepreneurs get to focus on the thing that they do best, the things that they love. Typically, they're doing all the other things that they also don't love. Like I'm running the finance team, I'm running the HR team, I'm going to like study up on regulatory. We're like, oh no, no, we've got the experts in that. You are brilliant in this space. You are brilliant in creating content and driving those influencer relationships and getting people aware of the product do more of that. And we will accelerate you by adding another channel that you're not focused on. And that's proven really great for us. In the last acquisition we did last summer, uh, within 60 days, we had um, doubled their Amazon channel. It's actually 5X today. And we have allowed them to maintain their unique, great focus on the DTC channel. And so that's our job. It's like, they're great, doing great things. Let's lean in. So we are fairly unique in that. There's lots of people who play more of a financial arbitrage game. I buy you, you're, meaning you're adding revenue or adding profitability to me, 
and I'm going to cut all the expenses. People do that. We don't take that philosophy. We think it's too hard to rebuild what entrepreneurs do. So we want them to be our partner and we want to grow with them. I love this model. Um, one of the companies it's called Resonance Brands. There are companies there in New York. And one of my good friends, Daniel Vosovic, um, he runs a company under the umbrella called The Kit. And their whole approach was also fashion designers. Not all of them are great at business. Daniel's very unique because he's actually really good at business. And he like had a multi-million dollar brand prior to. But he was like, I want to just focus on the vision and the the design, you know? The creativity. So yes. All of that. And it gave them the space to do that, you know? Yep. Because not every visionary is meant to be an operator. So I love this approach. And this approach is working really well for you all because you've, I mean, grown revenues like over 7,000% in a year. So yep. what would you say are the key levers that you all pulled on for, for that to happen? So there's two things that we got really structured around. Um, and one was when we pull someone into the ecosystem, we actually on week one put a data dashboard in place so that we can speak common language. Because oftentimes the way we maybe speak about language and the, maybe the way the entrepreneur has don't align. But what you need to build business is a way to talk about it with consistency to have a decision-making framework. So we looked at it and said, okay, day one, everyone has a data dashboard. Maybe it's just a spreadsheet with really rudimentary numbers on day one and it gets smarter over time, but we have to talk the same. Because if you can't talk the same, you don't know how to put levers for growth in place for the organization. That became, and I would say that has been one of the very smartest strategies that we could have implemented. Even if I was selling my company, I would now actually demand that of the person buying me. I'd be like, do you know what I need? I need us to have a language that we agree on that I report to you every week. And we review it every week and there's alerts that pop up if something's behind in every situation. So I think that's one of them. The other one is we tried to isolate what is it that the entrepreneur is doing so well that's driving the growth of that and give them the ability to lean heavily into that and then take the things that we had as specialties that could augment that and stack rank them as to the ones that would make the best return first. Can't solve all problems at once. Can't throw growth at everything at one time. And so some, in some cases you look at that and you say, okay, well, they're doing this channel really well, but they kept going out of stock because they don't have any sophistication on the logistics side or they didn't have the cash in order to manage inventory. And so, well, let's go solve the inventory problem because then that allows us to make sure that we have consistent revenue in that one channel. And then as we add another channel, we're going to even need more intelligence on that side to make sure that we're managing that. So we became very systematic in what thing do we think helps them first and what thing do we think grows first? So we did not focus on cost. Cost for us is like a six to nine month trailing component that we think about. We think growth first. We can partner together, stabilize business and create growth then we can go change the other levers. This is why I've, I'm happy you broke down this model, especially when it's private equity backed type of companies. And just to give, because this podcast is all about how can we help entrepreneur, women entrepreneurs, um, but we have some guys that are out there listening, um, really align with the path that is really in alignment with their vision of impact. And I think because the loudest narrative in the room right now, at least what's being covered, is be the biggest in the market. And the reality is like, there's only gonna be a few of those, right? That's, right. That's the nature of it. Like not everyone's gonna be big. 
But like also let's redefine what big means to you. Because if you're doing a, a couple million, a lot of times, like I remember asking an entrepreneur that was pitching and they had this like travel type of business. And I asked him, I'm like, are you really about this life in terms of becoming a multi-billion dollar company? Because what they were really pitching was like, I want to run it this way, like this. And I think that's what I love about this model. It's like, you're able to, uh, an entrepreneur say, we can actually get acquired and I can still run this thing. But now I don't have to worry about having to hit revenue goals over the year because that's how we feed ourselves, right? It's like, now we have this backing and this capital coming right. in and we can experiment a little more and we can do the things that we haven't had the capacity to do or the capital to do, which I love. And I love the part around, you know, operationalizing it. So prior, like while I was starting Get Shit Done, the way I capitalized it was consulting on other companies yeah. and one fashion brand literally that I was consulting on went from 10, I mean, 10,000 a month, hundred K a month in like less than a year. And a lot of it was, I was like, we need to document this. Like I built out a dashboard where I'm like, we're looking at numbers every week, every month, we're looking at the trends, what's happening. And like, that's so important for any stage of company. So I love that you say when these entrepreneurs come in and you acquire them and saying, we're going to let you do your thing. You said, what is it? Not break it, but broker it. Bolster, not break. Bolster, not break. I love that. I love that. Bolster, not break. It's like, do your thing, but like, let's give you the power to make better decisions so you know where to grow. And so the interesting thing about this model, and I think I hear that, I mean, not I think, I know, I hear this all the time in e-commerce, is that newness for the consumer is huge when you want to retain customers. You all are very interesting because you curate products. You only show a certain amount, but how are you all doing the curation process? And like, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs who are like, I, we can't keep up with, we're not Amazon. We can't have all this newness. Like, what does that look like? Because you, because you all aren't doing what Amazon does. And you're like, we offer everything under the sun. It right. is very curated. So what does that process look like? I think there's two things. First of all, it always starts with what, who the target customer is and what you need to do to create that relationship with them. So in some of our cases, so we, we own a company um, called Ambrosia. We've got one of the top selling plant-based proteins in the country because it has amazing flavor profiles. So plant-based protein, it's super hard to flavor. And so people don't, don't really like use it and love it, but it's so much better for people. And so we have, our top selling flavor is banana French toast, banana maple syrup. And then it's like candy bar and then strawberry ice cream. And so the way that we think about it is who's your target customer? And to your point, right, you're always thinking of innovation, but we do a lot of flavor derivatives that have specific points of time. So we did a gingerbread cookie one in Q4 that was tied into the holidays, but it doesn't make as much sense now because you do always have limited resources. It is very, very difficult to say, I'm going to invent something new in every quarter of the year. So what it makes you do is to start to think about who's your target customer? What do you have as your core that people really love? And how can you create variations of that in order to create some of that exclusivity? You see this in really large non-e-commerce strategies. If you watch someone like you know, a Bath and Body Works, they're brilliant at this. Right. Every six weeks, they're going to come out with a set of new things. And it's not like they created new soaps. All they did is create new variations. And your cost of doing that is actually much, much less than inventing an entire new product. 
Now we do, so we have one product line where we do a lot of the flavor variations and it makes a, a ton of sense because our target customer loves to be able to mix that up. In other cases, we actually have a nutrition line where we launch 40 new products a year. And we do that in order to be able to have um, a platform that continues to drive growth. Those audiences are completely different. Their go-to-market strategies, 100% different. And so when you talk about innovation and how you're going to invest in that, you have to be very clear. Who's the target customer you're selling at? What's their expectation of the market that you're playing into? And how can you make the economics work to deliver products that are going to make sense for them? Because you do have limited resources. You have limited capital and you have limited resources. But you also have to appreciate whatever industry you're in. Because there are some industries where you don't, or some categories where you don't have to do new innovation every quarter. Fashion is probably not one of those, right? Because it follows too much, tr many trends. Um, spaces like the protein market is really benefited by flavors. We do the same thing in a hydration line where we introduce new flavors with consistency. But in our home category, we don't. In our home category, the core products are really successful. And so when we think about that, we don't think about what's just how you massively innovate your core, but how do you add other things into it? And then also as you develop relationships with those customers, how do you introduce them into consumables? How do you introduce them into other products that are value-add that are also part of the, the platform? So I think it's a very specific strategy. It doesn't always mean new reinvention, but it does mean understanding target customer. And if you're in a space like fashion, I don't know if there's a way around it. You might have a couple of core staples, but it is a trend-based business. And so you should just build that into the DNA and into the business model from day one. Yeah, and I think to your point as well, like what does newness look like? Because specifically in fashion, it's that you can have like a core body or product mm -hmm. and you make variations off of that instead exactly. of having yes. to go to market with something else and you have to test something and you don't even know if it's proven. It's like, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like do the same thing and just create different colors in it. And so I love this. And I would be, I, I know our, our e-commerce people and CPG people are listening, like customer acquisition, customer acquisition. <laughs> it's all customer acquisition. It is all customer acquisition. So what advice would you have? Because you now are running a company that is, you know, you all are backed by $118 million in, in capital. But it still sounds like you all are running these companies really lean. Um, but also, you know what it's like to build from the ground up. It is I mean, way more expensive than when I, my last company that was in e-commerce, e like customer acquisition was already rising. Like now the cost is just, I mean, out, out insane. So for, you know, entrepreneurs, small businesses, just startups who are like, we don't have the budget. We can't compete with Amazon. We can't compete with Brandless. Like there's just no way we don't have these budgets. What would you say if you were advising them, where would you say to focus in terms of being able to acquire customers for zero to very low budget, what would you say to them? So the hat I wear when you ask me that question is my product validation hat. So when I'm taking a product to market for the very first time, for me, it is all about obviously product market fit. So let's assume that we have that. But if you have that fit, it means that you know a segment of um, customers that would love your product and will buy it. Because what the the misnomer that people have is that you just throw marketing budgets and then everyone drives acquisition. The things that makes it most expensive is if you're not talking to exactly the person that you have high predictability will purchase. So if you're a scrappy entrepreneur and you're launching for the very first time, what you're totally thinking about is if I find this one customer that looks just like this, 90% of the time, can I convince them to buy? 
And then how do I get in front of them? And you can be so smart about that. It can be coming through organic ways that you reach them. I and mean, we see companies in all sorts of really smart ways, whether it's in wholesale channels, whether it's in the tactics they use. I actually separate direct-to-consumer paid media from influencer because we have paid, earned, and owned channels. And you have to think about which ones make sense for you. And if you're starting out, you need to think about how do I get my first five customers, my first 500, and my first thousand. And that does not take large budget. What that takes is having an amazing product, meeting them in a place where they find out about you and getting convincing them that you're the product. And then once they taste the product or experience it, they love it that they tell other people. And so your job is to capture in those very small levels originally the ways that you reach them. And you can do it in so many scrappy ways, right? You see people do it through the influence of their friends that are happening in social and people's ability to like get pulled into the fold. I kind of view product validation as your first sales channel. Like your job is to get people to love product as much as you do and to talk about it. And yeah. if they're willing to do that, then you know you have something that spreads. And so you just put this hat on of like, I don't need $100,000 to go launch this product. What I need is just really smart, creative ideas in order to go reach my audience and show up where they are and get and introduce them to my product and talk to them about it. And you can do it in great ways. And people want to help people. I mean, you can go even into local communities and be like, do you have email lists that I can use? Can I do a collaboration with you? Can I share information about you? Can I do donations you know, into that ecosystem of small amounts for a giveaway that you're doing? You can be super scrappy. I have seen thousands of entrepreneurs who are willing to, it's a little bit more work because it's not like clicking a button to go live for an ad, but it is the way that you build businesses and it's the way that you build loyalty for brand. And this goes back to storytelling because the best, I mean, entrepreneurs who are huge now, like the ones we keep hearing about, like a Sarah Blakely, everything was storytelling. Everything right. was storytelling. It was like, I'm selling these things when I'm in the middle of sacks. I'm selling these things. Like I'm yep. going their feet on the ground. Like, and I think because what my grandmother calls this microwave culture, we want things instantly. And I'm like, but nothing great was built instantly. Like there's right. so many unscalable things that happen. And what I was thinking of, especially around like the curation, I started thinking about Brandless offers things at a very low price point. And it's so interesting in this space because it's like, are you competing on price point quality? Or is it a combination of things? But what's really hard for e-commerce and CPG brands is like the margin, right? And when you're a smaller company, you could get eaten alive because you're like, we just don't have the backing. So how would you advise entrepreneurs who are in this space to be thinking about pricing so they can be competitive, but also making sure that their, their unit economics make sense? Yeah, I mean, you asked two, two of the most critical questions. I actually put the procurement justification pricing question in my validation model. So when I think about, so if I'm introducing a new product, let's say we've not even made it, we're trying to figure out if someone will buy it. After I tell them everything it is and everything that it's not, then I actually ask the question, would you use this product and how? And what are you willing to pay for it? The reason those questions are so critical ahead of when you actually go to market is because it tells you exactly what you just said. What do my unit economics have to be? And how much revenue am I gonna make? And will that work in my business model? I actually once tested a product, I've tested many products that I have not done because the answers to those questions didn't work. Because I needed the economic business model underneath it for the cost of goods to be completely different than what people were willing to pay for. Because when you go into building something, if you don't understand the economics, it's really hard to change them once you've gone to market. 
you have to understand what people are willing to pay for what you're giving, what it's going to cost you to be able to deliver. Because at the end of the day, especially in consumer, this isn't the tech world. We are building products where the economics have to make sense so that we don't get upside down fast. Because then it's easier to get the investment capital for growth because you can say, I know what my unit economics are. I know how to scale this. You pour more money in and it's for growth. It's not for figuring out other problems. And if you end up in a situation where the price or the cost of goods is so expensive that you can't pay for marketing or overhead or profit, it's going to be a very difficult business to change in the future. So then you come back to the drawing board and you say, what variables could I change? Are there ones that I'm okay changing? How could I reconstruct this in order to really build that? If you get upside down in financials, you almost never get back on the right track. Mm, I love this because I think often we'll lead with, here's the, the product I'm going with and here's how much it's going to cost me. And now I'm going to go to market without actually really talking to the consumer. And that's the, one of the overarching themes. Like, there's like probably five key things that when we interview women on this podcast um, that are constantly coming up. And one of those things is listening to your customers, like from the beginning throughout the entire journey. So I love that you brought this up. And, you know, going back to, you know, the unit economics, but also growth and scale. So this company has raised 118 million. And I mean, I'm really excited for e-commerce and CPG right now because I think there's this moment in the market where it's like, yes, consumers want to consume. They are doing the things. Agreed. And it has, I remember I'm, my last two companies were in the e-commerce fashion tech space and raising capital, I mean, was so much harder than our SaaS like counterparts. Oh, totally. So yep. much harder. So for entrepreneurs that are in this space, you know, because you all have done it, right? And mind you, under a different type of umbrella, sure, not necessarily sure. VC, but what advice would you have for them when it comes to approaching investors about, you know, investing into their businesses? Because a lot of times investors see, um, especially in venture capital, they might see, ooh, like the high overhead, the cost of acquisition, and they're like, no, I don't want that. What would you say to them? Because a lot of them feel so deflated. And this has been years of like, yep. we are just like the ugly step or treated like the ugly stepchildren. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also businesses that have both tech and physical goods also don't have the same like economics and or access to venture. So yep. a couple of things I've learned, and you said this already. First of all, raising capital is hard. So we're just going to acknowledge that it doesn't matter who you are. In every ecosystem, raising capital is hard and you have a lot of rejection. A lot of people tell you no. So those two things you have to be prepared for. Even though it's a math game, it's still very real to us and our businesses. It is also true that in the consumer sector, capital hasn't looked the same as it's looked in tech and venture. And so we tend to compare ourselves. So when I have in this, in this consumer space, because I've raised in the, similar to you, right, in the tech space, and it is a different dynamic. So I very first start with basically profiling who I think is doing consumer deals and in similar spaces to me, because what happens with most venture capital? Now, there's seed stage funds that are a little bit more fluid, right? Early stage investors, they tend to not have all of the same thesis that bigger capital does. But as you get to bigger funds, then the bigger funds all have a directive for how they will deploy capital and they very rarely deviate from it. And so my experience, the way I think about them is I profile them just like they profile me. Like I'm not going to go waste my time in front of the venture groups who have never funded deals 
in this space and who don't understand it because it is an uphill battle and then it just adds to my time. So because capital is hard to raise and you get lots of rejection, you have to get much smarter in who you go ask for the capital from. And you really have three buckets, people who have consumer funds, they don't look like the venture funds. Typically the venture funds do not overlap in consumer. It's an entirely different group of, of people. And the way they talk about the business is they understand EBITDA and profit and growth and they're okay with smaller companies. That's awesome because I don't need the billion dollar opportunity to raise capital. But secondly, you have strategics that also put money into lots of consumer. Uh, is there someone in your future that you could think about who you should partner with or collaborate with that would see what you're doing is interesting, willing to put money in? I have found that consistently in my consumer space as a very interesting path to capital because they also don't think about valuation exactly the same. They're looking for strategic opportunity and they align with ways I want to grow. I really like strategic capital and I like strategic capital in the consumer space, either from supply chain partners or brands or anyone in the middle of those things. I actually also think family offices are super interesting in the consumer space because they too don't have the same directive of like, I only invest in SaaS, I only invest in FinTech and anything else is justified about that. They have breadth. So if you can find family offices who are both, they're great money, they're great partners, and they're willing to place bets in other places. I really like that avenue for capital also. I love this. And so my next question for you is around like leadership. So you have, you know, built, scaled all these companies, and now this is your next, your next thing, sure. you know, and I'm wondering, what do you feel? Because it hasn't even been that long. You know, it hasn't been a, a long time since you've been in this company, but you've already made such a big impact. But what do you feel has been one of your biggest mistakes in running Brandless to date that you feel has been one of your best lessons in leadership? Oh, that's a really good question. I feel like I'm in this constant journey of leadership. So um, I think I'm always constantly reminded that it's okay to, when you make, so a couple of things. I have been on a constant path of reorg since I started this company. And in the beginning, I was slower because I was worried about the impact to employees because people don't like uncertainty, right? They like the security of certain jobs, but we quickly started changing the company so rapidly with acquisitions and growth. And in the beginning, I was slow. And I would say that in some places, it didn't make us perform as well as we could have. And so I've moved into this place over the course of the last couple of years where I have just asked the culture to embrace rapid organizational change. The only thing I can guarantee is that the organization looks different next quarter. And I need you to be okay with that. And I need everyone to be okay with these moving pieces that we're trying to move to optimize the performance of the business. And because you have people, I'm so sensitive to um, you know, individuals, right? Everyone's trying to balance life and work and the things that are important to them. And you want them to show up every day, also helping you build the company. So you need this culture of transparency so people understand how decisions are made. And because of that heightened sensitivity I have for how you create organizations and how you help people perform, um, I was more hesitant in the beginning. But what I have found is by being willing to more rapidly change and be open about that's the nature of the company is that everyone is better in that situation and they contribute great ideas and they too feel like we should constantly be optimizing 
for success. And sometimes I think we're slow to make decisions as leaders because we're fearful of the repercussions. You talked about fear earlier. We don't know what it will mean, but when we know we should make a change, we should make a change. And we should have the courage to do it at the moment that we know we should. Because every time I have delayed making a change I knew I should have, it has not been for the benefit of everyone else around it. I love this because I'm in this stage of like honoring rhythms and cycles. I do this meditation around and everything. And I think to your point around being very clear and communicating, and I want this for every company, but I especially want to see this for VC-backed companies, creating a boundary saying, we can there's no such thing as infinite growth like life doesn't work that way it's like that's why we have seasons like winter everything hibernate you know like i love what you said about one quarter it's going to look this way the next quarter it's not going to be the same like it's okay for there to be ebbs and flows maybe it's stagnant maybe it dips maybe it goes up but it just mm -hmm. cannot remain at the same pace that's not how life works and that's not how business works so i love that lesson and my final question to you is you know, the reason we exist is we really create, care about creating companies that scale generational impact. And yes. that looks different for everyone. But again, it comes to when we're scaling businesses, what do we see as being impact, not just for ourselves, but for our communities, for our families, for the environment. So when you think about this company and how you're running it today, what does long-term what does long-term um, scaling generational impact look like to you? If you could see Brandless 10 years from now and you're like, yep. if we could get there, that's impact. What does that look like for you? This is, this is a really great question. One of the coolest things about building companies is not only can you take like your creativity and your innovation and build a product that matters, but you get an opportunity to provide economic value for other people in your ecosystem, including your employees. And what it means when you build successful companies is you get the opportunity to help everyone in your company, in your communities, and really for the rest of their lives if you set it up correctly. And so I think that when you think about impact, it's not just about are people showing up, right? It is about are you creating an intentional structure that makes a difference for people? So for me in the company, that shows up in all sorts of ways, shows up in ways we try to get back to the community that we engage our employees on. It shows up in how I think about equity and giving equity to the people around the table who are helping us. It shows up in the decision-making that we make for what we invest in, in products, because impact 10 years from now actually starts today. And it starts today with every decision that you make. It starts with how you treat employees. And impact shows up in many ways. It shows up in how you help people further along in their careers. They're not gonna work for me forever. But what I do to invest in and leverage their talents sets them up for the next phase. And it sets them up for whatever their life journey is. My job is to help people be the very best and use their talents to help us grow the company. And then our other job is to take the resources and the opportunities we have to think about how we make a difference for people who are around us, to find ways that product integrates with that. And we've had a couple of unique opportunities because our products have aligned so well. When the Afghan refugees started coming in and Salt Lake City takes a ton of refugees, they came on the planes with nothing. And so we decided with some of our personal care and baby products just to provide them bags of product that they could have when they walked off the plane. And then we built furniture as teams to provide that or to provide them furniture from one of the other e-commerce companies that donated furniture. But you're just looking for those opportunities. I actually have a program inside the company where we think about how every employee has an allocation to be able to sponsor something that's important to them. So in their local communities, our company shows up in the places that they are 
and that they're translating the help that we're giving because then it's making a difference to individuals. And ultimately, generational wealth will come through equity. That's the biggest dynamic that must change. We have to enable women to not only move into the senior leadership positions and have strong pathways there, but also have an equity stake that creates generational wealth. That's the fundamental flaw that has existed. In tech, only 5% of women, 5% of execs are women. If only 5% of execs are women, they're not getting a significant enough portion of the equity that gets distributed in the exits in order to create the generational plan. And we have to make that change. We have to help more women into those senior positions. And if you're building companies that have generational impact, you need the ability to have more women in those senior positions in order to really create the next wave. Oh, Sydney, you're speaking my language. I love this. So <laughs> based on, I mean, you all have already done so much to create impact today, but for that bigger vision, what can people listening in do to support you on that journey? Um, what's one way that they can support you? Well, I guess I'll give you two ways, right? One is in their own leadership skills, they can intentionally think about how you accelerate other people around you and how you give them access to more opportunities than they might not have without your help. I think that's one of the biggest things. I think we can also lean into being better networks. You're, you're building this to create a network of people to drive change so that they can lift and help each other. We can be more intentional and spend time to do that and use our networks to help other people. And then I think you can always support female entrepreneurs in their companies and the things that they're doing because it makes a big difference if we support each other. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done. <laughs>